The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. A clear and present danger in the White House. This is Thursday, January 3rd, 2019. Thank you for supporting this independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Happy New Year. As we try to settle into 2019, the State of the Union is worrisome, but not without hope. I'll cover the hope, I promise, after we examine the worries. Government shut down while the president holds his breath until he gets a wall. The stock market's shaky, partly due to comments by the president and his treasury secretary, and all while the treasury department itself is closed. Troop withdrawals have opened the door for ISIS, while back here, the Department of Homeland Security is closed and the defense secretary has resigned in protest, all while our military is being politicized. Our allies are rattled. Russia's Vladimir Putin is delighted. Sanctions against his country are being lifted. The U.S. military has been pushed aside to make room for Russia's. Things are going better than Vladimir Putin hoped. Also, children are dying in U.S. custody. The planet's health is being threatened by government policy. America has not been made great again, but its problems have. And we have an increasingly cornered president who strongly appears to have been serving only himself and Russia instead of putting America first. An increasingly cornered president who is the subject of criminal and counterintelligence prosecutions that have already sent some of his top people to prison. These are not liberal talking points. They are facts and likelihoods based on an overwhelming pile of evidence further outlined here today. Presidential historian John Meacham calls the situation an existential constitutional crisis, saying it's quite possible the president is a witting or partially witting agent of a foreign power. The clear and present danger is in the White House. On the night before Christmas... The stock market had just suffered its biggest Christmas Eve drop since the Great Depression. There's a better than 50-50 chance your 401k is in the stock market. If so, you may have lost as much as 20%. You'll see how much you lost in dollars on your next statement a few weeks from now. Experts say it's better not to look, but to stay your course and to wait for that money to come back. The stock market has also been this president's pride and joy, but it's been on a three-month downslide that's only gotten worse. It was Christmas Eve, and Donald Trump was, for all intents and purposes, alone in the White House. He even tweeted that he was alone. He was also tweeting, angrily of course, at some of the people on his naughty list, the usual targets, and a new one or two. The staff had already taken off. Melania had already landed in South Florida. Before she left, with cameras rolling, The first lady and her husband answered some of the calls pouring into NORAD's Santa tracking hotline, which was not affected by the shutdown. Trump handled the kids with his usual tact and grace. Still a believer in Santa? He asked the seven-year-old, adding, because it's seven, it's marginal, right? After a few calls, the Trumps went to church for Christmas Eve services at the National Cathedral. Then Melania was off to Florida, and the president was alone. He's mostly okay with being alone. The Washington Post reports that these days, in moments of frustration, Trump shouts at his advisors that they are effing idiots. That environment could partly explain the 65% turnover rate among his top aides. Three chiefs of staff, three national security advisors, two attorneys general, and perhaps soon will be up to two defense secretaries. 
The government's experienced professionals focused on keeping the nation safe have all but decided there's just no talking to him. Trump has reportedly decided that advisors have gotten him nowhere. This is also the man who'd famously said, quote, I alone can fix the system. That system is now shut down at his insistence in a shutdown he said he would be proud to own. His oldest friends say they don't hear from him much anymore. At this year's White House holiday parties, he put in appearances, stood for some pictures, and soon headed back upstairs, no mingling. Insiders tell the Post he spends more time in front of the TV, meaning Fox News. This is a president who listens to his gut and the Fox News channel, and now more than ever. The morning viewing that used to end at around 9.30 a.m. now lasts until 11 and resumes in the evenings. It had to make Trump uneasy to hear Steve Ducey say on Fox and Friends, quote, if there's not a shutdown, he's going to look like a loser. Fox's Laura Ingram had already said the wall has to be built. Conservative gadfly Ann Coulter said that if the wall didn't get built, quote, he'd have no legacy whatsoever. Rush Limbaugh said the president was getting ready to cave on getting the wall money in his budget. At that moment, Limbaugh was right. It did appear for a Trumpian second that there might be a compromise on border security that would prevent a government shutdown. But thus spoke Fox News and other right-wing voices that there has to be a wall or Trump is a loser without a legacy. So Trump knew what he had to do. Fox and Limbaugh and Coulter had gotten the president to do what they knew his gut was inclined to conclude. Dig in. Shut the mother down if he didn't get the wall he'd promised to the 38% of Americans who still support him. Advisors and federal workers and taxpayers be damned. Trump would go with his gut and Fox News. The president of the United States is not just without impartial advisors these days, he's without supervision. In the first two years of his presidency, Trump was surrounded by people who tried to talk reason. They urged restraint tried to teach him history, explained consequences, and provided him with survivable talking points. Republican Senator Bob Corker once called the West Wing an adult daycare center. That daycare center is now closed, and its teachers and guidance counselors have been sent home. Perhaps the last two people considered voices of reason in the West Wing are gone now. White House Chief of Staff John Kelly and Defense Secretary Jim Mattis. Kelly asks that we judge him for what he kept Trump from doing, over those first two years, and for staying on the job as long as he could out of a sense of duty. Mattis asks that we watch our backs, especially when it comes to national security. The two of them and others have tried for two years to keep Trump on course. General H.R. McMaster, Trump's second national security advisor, served one year in that same capacity. Their times are up. Their replacements are yes-men. In other words, Trump is now unrestrained, free to make decisions from his gut, steered greatly by far right-wing talkers who are likely less qualified than those retired generals. The candidate who said he was smarter than the generals told the Post in late November, I have a gut, and my gut tells me more sometimes than anybody else's brain can ever tell me. The Brookings Institution's Thomas Wright told the Post, Trump wants total freedom to do what he wants, when he wants, and he's much closer to getting that which is what will terrify not only Congress, but the rest of the world as well. To quote another retired general, Barry McCaffrey, this is a rogue presidency. Now former Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill did an exit interview with CNN in which she claimed that Republican senators say things like this privately, quote, the guy's nuts. He doesn't have a grasp of the issues. He's making rash decisions. He's not listening to people who know the subject matter. McCaskill told CNN, 
He's almost a master of, I'm going to do so much stuff that's crazy, nobody notices crazy anymore. Now, part of the conversation about him are the words crazy and nuts. Donald J. Trump has held the nuclear codes since about noon Eastern on January 20th, 2017, and that has not changed. What has changed is that he is now unrestrained, unconfined, and without guidance, aside from his gut and Fox News. When Mattis ran the military, he told Strategic Command to respond to presidential orders only after running it by him first. He told a worried Congress he'd told the missile launchers to, quote, not put on a pot of coffee without letting him know. Hopefully, Mattis's replacement will have the same rule. Hopefully. Trump is the reason Congress is considering taking the independent button-pushing decision away from all presidents and making it an advise-and-consent decision instead. In the meantime, it's him, his gut, and his friends at Fox. By Christmas Day, Trump had been swamped with criticism over being the first president not to visit the troops for that holiday, so he made a secret surprise trip to Iraq. But Trump continued to be different from normal presidents, addressing some of the troops instead of all of them, dividing them instead of uniting them. When Trump spotted red hats in that sea of camouflage and a Trump 2020 patch and a Make America Great Again flag, his speech drifted to politics, telling all the troops that Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats are weak on border security. He traveled to Iraq at Christmas to talk to the troops about his Mexican border wall. A typically non-political visit was looking a bit like another one of his political rallies, and it raised questions about the Pentagon's rules against political displays by its personnel. The Pentagon is now studying video of that event and trying to find out where its soldiers got that Trump paraphernalia. As he has done with the justice system already, Trump was now politicizing the military, the commander-in-chief using some of the troops as political pawns. Having avoided serving in Nam because of a bone spur diagnosed by his family's longtime podiatrist friend, their commander-in-chief also lied to them. They had to be paying attention and had to have known he was lying because he talked about their paychecks. Referring to a recent raise, he said, You haven't gotten one in more than 10 years. More than 10 years, he repeated. That's not true. The troops have gotten raises every year since 1983. The commander-in-chief continued his lies to the troops. I got you a big one, continued Trump. They said, you know, we could make it smaller, citing 4% and 2% as examples. I said no, continued the chief. Make it 10%. Make it more than 10%. That's not what happened either. Examining their paychecks, the troops can see the raise was a typical 2.6%. Not 10. Not the first in 10 years. None of it true. And by the way, Iraqi lawmakers, after Trump's surprise visit, demanded that the U.S. pull all its troops out of their country as well. Trump was counting on Iraq to serve as a U.S. base for fighting the ISIS that remains in the Syria he's abandoning. It's well established that the President of the United States is an habitual liar, albeit often out of bias and a willful ignorance of the facts. According to the fact-checkers at the Washington Post, this president has recently lied at an average rate of 39 per day. That's nearly four times the average during his first eight months in office. He upped his average at the campaign rallies he held during the midterm election. 139 lies in Ohio, 130 in Florida and Montana, 97 at the rallies in Indiana and West Virginia, and another 90 in Mississippi. Over 450 untrue statements just at rallies just in one month. 
Trump's rally lies account for about a fourth of his falsehoods. By the end of 2018, Trump had made over 7,600 false statements since taking office. In 2018, he averaged 15 a day, starting early in the morning and continuing late into the night. On the issues, most of his false claims are about immigration. 94 times he's falsely claimed that his wall is already being built. Lying has worked in his favor for the better part of two years. But the lies aren't working as well anymore. A poll usually favorable for Trump, Quinnipiac, found that only 36% of voters believe he is honest in a nation whose founding president was legendary for his refusal to lie. The Gallup poll puts Trump's approval rating at 38%, the lowest it's been since he declared there were good people on both sides in the deadly white nationalist rally in Charlottesville. Another poll says his popularity has dropped 6% in the past six weeks or so. Republican pollsters have tried to warn Trump that he has alienated most voters and that this will hurt his re-election chances for 2020. As earlier established, this president's not fond of advice. Ignoring that advice is costing him poll numbers and a chance for re-election. But Trump always doubles down when the going gets rough. On the seventh day of the shutdown, he again threatened to shut down the border if he didn't get his wall money. Perhaps, unfortunately for him, he's playing to a shrinking audience despite the lessons a normal president would have learned from the midterm elections. It's why he thought a shutdown would be just the ticket when it comes to delivering that promised border wall, even though Quinnipiac finds that 62% of us are against a government shutdown over wall funding. For that matter, 54% of us are against the damned wall, including 54% of Republicans. And a range of polls shows more of us blame Trump and his Republican Party than blame the Democrats. He's playing to his dwindling voter base while angering the majority of Americans. One Republican strategist says, in a government of the people, it sure helps to have a majority of the people behind what you're trying to do. The majority of Americans have hardened against him, just as the 38% who support him have hardened. Republicans in Congress have reason to be worried about their own futures, tying themselves to a president with numbers like these. Their ultimate abandonment of him seems inevitable, and that day is drawing closer. Trump is trapped, according to veteran Republican strategist Mark Murphy, who says of Trump, he's playing poker, holding two threes and suddenly putting all his chips in. It's pure emotion, the mark of a panicking amateur. Trump was certainly panicking over his stock market. He was asking his advisors if he could fire Jerome Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve Board. He cannot. No president can. But he asked, lacking knowledge about our government, Trump blames interest rate hikes by the Fed for the stock drop, and he's been criticizing Powell for months. Trump has denied asking if he could fire Powell, but at least two people who know told the Washington Post Trump was enraged by the stock market falloff and wanted somebody to blame. Running into a dead end there, within 48 hours by Christmas Eve, the president had found a more accurate target, his own Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin. A source told CNN that Mnuchin is under the gun, which... Hasn't worked out well for others in that situation. It was Mnuchin who tried to calm the markets and actually, in the process, made them worse. Mnuchin proudly announced he'd surveyed the nation's top banks to see if they're secure and that they had said that they were. Investors were shaken to know that Mnuchin would even ask such a question unless he had doubts of his own. 
the Democrats, now in control of the House of Representatives, hope to separate these two issues, the wall and the shutdown. But until they have succeeded, you can't talk about the shutdown without discussing the wall the shutdown is all about. Trump believes that some kind of wall equals border security, and he wants over $5 billion of taxpayer money to build it. Democrats say border security only needs about $1.5 billion in improvements, and they call this wall an outdated solution. That's a waste of money. Nothing more than a monument to Trump's ego and racism. The vote to reopen government with a new federal budget is being held up because the president won't sign it unless he gets his wall. We'll obviously get back to the shutdown, but about this wall, do we need it? Who's right? The Department of Homeland Security would probably know. And back in September, when Homeland Security was still open, it issued a report on the state of border security. It found that security to be, quote, tougher than ever. The report says that up to 85% of attempted illegal crossings fail, an increase of as much as 70% over the past 10 years. The number of attempted border crossings is down because, according to the report, would-be migrants are discouraged to the point of abandoning their plans to enter the U.S. A separate study from the University of Washington found that nearly half the immigrants who come here return to their home countries. The number of arrests along the border has dropped under Trump, a trend that began in the Obama administration. The number of failed arrests, the gotaways as they're called, has also dropped by 83%. Homeland Security says border agents are not overwhelmed, as you may have heard they are. The average border agent makes about 20 arrests a year and goes days or weeks with making no arrests at all. And all of this without a wall according to Trump's own Department of Homeland Security, when it was still open. But the conservative support Trump holds so dear was crumbling in his hands from his own hands. Conservatives were calling him gutless and saying he'd probably never build the wall he'd promised. Interestingly, conservatives are not holding him to his promise that Mexico would pay for the wall. Other conservatives wondered if Trump should be reined in after his order to immediately withdraw all the troops from Syria and half the troops in Afghanistan, reopening the door for ISIS to regrow itself and for the Taliban to expand. It was at that moment that Trump made his final call that without his wall, he would not sign the funding bill to keep government open. Instead, he would let more than 800,000 federal workers go without paychecks for Christmas and make half of them keep working at no pay. Because the wall. Parks a mess. Moose out front should have told you. Although our national parks remain open during this partial government shutdown, there's very little staff to tend to them. As a result, our most popular parks out west are in chaos, trash and human feces overflowing, off-road vehicles trampling flora and fauna, vandalism and people fighting over camping spots. 24-year-old Dakota Snyder has lived and worked in the park as a federal employee for four years. She's still working, but not getting paid. She says it's a free-for-all in the parks right now. It's so heartbreaking. There's more trash and human waste and disregard for the rules than I've seen in my four years living here. She's concerned about the safety of natural artifacts and the safety of the park's visitors. The campground at California's Joshua Tree has now been closed, despite plans to keep it open during the government shutdown. At California's Sequoia National Park, roads are closed because they are blocked 
either by ice because the snowplow drivers are furloughed or by garbage that's not being collected. And the parks are just the beginning. Except for essential personnel, the aforementioned Homeland Security Department is closed and takes the hardest hit of all. The U.S. Treasury is closed, including the IRS. The Commerce Department is also shut down. The VA is closed, as is Health and Human Services. Shutdowns also at the FCC and the Small Business Administration. The State Department, dark. No passports or visas. Justice Department, too. Pardon our dust. Nobody's home at the Agriculture Department, where they oversee the safety of our food supply. Transportation's down, so air traffic controllers and railroad safety inspectors are working without paychecks. The Housing Department is closed, along with the Department of the Interior. The parks are open, but the museums are closed. Of the nine government agencies hit, Homeland Security takes it the hardest. 54,000 of its border agents are not getting paid. Same for its 42,000 Coast Guard personnel and 53,000 TSA agents. Elsewhere, also working without pay, 17,000 prison guards, 14,000 FBI agents, and 5,000 Forest Service firefighters who have spent the past year fighting the Western wildfires. Government workers are afraid and angry. Just before the shutdown, Trump signed an executive order freezing their salaries, the salaries of all non-military federal workers. Because of that order, they won't be getting the raises they had been expecting this year. Two million civilian federal workers won't be getting their 2.1% raises. Without explaining that the reason is his corporate tax cut, Trump says the budget can now not afford those raises. Nearly half our federal workers are afraid of what will become of them without a paycheck soon. This is the 13th day of the shutdown. The workers are angry about being political pawns, and they're not waiting around for this president or this Congress. At least one federal workers' union is suing the federal government over being forced to work without pay. Half of the 800,000 federal workers affected are considered essential and therefore working without pay for now. They will be paid, at least they normally are, and federal workers have been through shutdowns before, too many times. They don't usually last very long, but as one worker put it, this time feels different. This is not the first time federal workers have sued the government over holding their pay, and the last time it happened, a judge ordered the government to pay the workers double the money they had earned in their absence. Shutdowns are expensive for taxpayers. This one is about a wall to be paid for by taxpayers. Trump tweeted, shut down today, and that it might last, quote, very long, because the wall. Trump has now removed himself from the shutdown. A week after saying he'd, quote, take the mantle, Trump disowned the shutdown like a bankrupt casino. I'm not going to blame you for it, he had assured Chuck and Nancy in their televised reality show-style meeting the week before Christmas. A week later, Trump tweeted, the Democrats now own the shutdown. As with the stock market, there had to be someone for the president to blame, other than himself. The former president of the bankrupt Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino tells the Washington Post, it's indicative of how he thinks so in the moment and so off the cuff that it winds up being dangerous. The former Trump executive continues, once things are going wrong, he takes no ownership. He'll blame anybody. Senate leader Mitch McConnell, meanwhile, has been laying low in Kentucky. McConnell hates shutdowns and had predicted this one wouldn't even happen. He was wrong, which he also hates. 
McConnell didn't realize that Trump's decision to keep government open without wall money would be reversed at the last minute thanks to taunting from right-wing radio and TV talkers. You could say Mitch McConnell found a way to withdraw from public view as he ended the year and the old Congress with a shutdown in which nobody wins. He would leave that for the Democrats. Beginning to fix this mess is now on them. And then came the new year, and then came today, when Democrats took control of the House. And before they even showed up for work this morning, Democrats had a plan to reopen the government and a strategy, they thought, to make Republicans over in the Senate go along. The strategy includes trying to back the president into a corner that would theoretically force him to sign the bill that reopens government, even though it would contain no money for his wall. Specifically, the Democrats' plan would keep government running through the rest of the fiscal year, except for Homeland Security, which would only be funded for another month. That month gives all sides time to talk and settle this wall issue while most of the government stays open. Because of the shutdown crisis, this new Democratic House is forced to delay for a bit its original top priorities, which include outlawing gerrymandering and tougher enforcement of voting rights. On Christmas morning, a child was dead. Two days after the U.S. returned to Guatemala, the body of a seven-year-old girl who died in U.S. border custody, a second child from Guatemala in U.S. custody had died. On Christmas Day in the morning, both children had survived the 2,000-mile walk from Guatemala but had died within 48 hours of being detained by Border Patrol agents. This time, it was an eight-year-old boy, the second migrant child to die in our care in less than two weeks. Ignoring the aforementioned numbers from her own department, Homeland Secretary Kirsten Nielsen blamed the deaths on a dramatic increase that had pushed the system to its breaking point. She makes this claim subsequent to her own department's report that it is not overwhelmed and that migration numbers are actually down, not up. The president who gave Secretary Nielsen her job blamed the deaths on Democrats for building up false hopes that immigrants could come to this country that has the statue out front inviting the tired and the poor despite their U.S. and international rights to ask for asylum. If we had a wall, tweeted Trump, they wouldn't even try. Customs and Border Protection, meanwhile, is asking Congress for more money to properly house and provide medical care for migrant children. Meanwhile, state and federal investigators are looking into the papers of undocumented immigrants they say have worked at Trump's golf course resort in New Jersey. At least five workers from Trump National say they were given fake green cards and fake Social Security numbers just in case immigration showed up. A five-year employee of the resort, one of those who've turned over their phony papers to investigators, is the woman who made Trump's bed in his room at Trump National. She, too, is from Guatemala. The president is also losing as many battles as he's winning on immigration, thanks to court rulings. On Friday, the Supreme Court, many worry, is tilted in his favor, denied his attempt to revive his ban on asylum for anyone and everyone who tries to cross the southern border unless they go through the eternally slow process at our official checkpoints. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg voted with the other three liberals on the bench to deny Trump's motion just before she underwent surgery to remove a cancerous growth from her lung at age 85. She's back home now with no trace of cancer remaining. But it was the vote of conservative Chief Justice John Roberts that gave the liberals the win. He, too, voted against Trump. Trump scandal watchers are hoping 
he'll do that again. When James Mattis went to the White House, he was pretty sure of the answer he would get when he would ask the president one last time if he's sure he wants to pull U.S. troops out of Syria. That's why Mattis carried a resignation letter in his pocket because of all the distasteful things he had witnessed during his two years alongside Trump. The Syria decision was too much, too disastrous to be part of. Mattis was right about what the president's answer would be, so he handed Trump that letter. And as Mattis returned to the Pentagon to announce his resignation there, Trump tweeted that Mattis would be leaving his post at the end of February with distinction. Trump was gracious at first because he hadn't actually read Mattis's resignation letter. It wasn't until he saw the key parts of that letter on TV, the parts that were about or aimed at him. Mattis explained that he and the president differ on treating allies with respect and about being clear about the nefarious intentions of Russia and China. Mattis praised NATO, which Trump has criticized and alienated. Mattis praised the defeat ISIS coalition that may or may not succeed now that Trump's pulling U.S. troops out of Syria. At the start of a massive troop withdrawal, with the stock market in free fall and the government shut down, the nation's defense secretary was following the White House chief of staff out the door. Quoting the top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, this is scary. Virginia's Mark Warner was not alone. Our European allies were once again alarmed by the Trump administration, British officials calling it deeply disturbing. Alarm also from Germany and Israel. The UK's defense minister called Mattis trusted by our allies, feared by our foes, the most impressive military mind I've had the honor to know. Jim wrote Tobias Elwood, our world will be less safe without you. U.S. allies are afraid that their alliances are falling apart and that ISIS terror will spread without a strong U.S. presence and that U.S. foreign policy is being driven by one man, one very undependable man. Following Mattis out the door was the U.S. envoy to every foreign country in the world willing to fight ISIS. Brett McGurk quit right after Mattis and for the same reason, Trump's decision to pull out of Syria, a decision described as scary and deeply disturbing. After those departures, Trump tweeted that Mattis would be out two full months earlier than previously announced. Trump was kicking Mattis out early for saying bad things about him, buried in a long and boring letter. Trump had finally seen on TV the parts of Mattis's letter he hadn't read and ordered Mattis out the door. The country heralded as the most powerful on earth had for more than a week no defense secretary at all. The new guy started Tuesday, promising to carry out Trump's vision at the Pentagon. What other choice would he have? Did you see what happened to the last guy? But in the words of Russian President Vladimir Putin, Donald's right, and I agree with him. Putin was pleased that Trump had moved out of his way militarily in the Middle East. The troop withdrawal from Syria that prompted General Mattis to resign in protest opens the door for Iran to increase its influence in the region, and it leaves Israel on its own to stop the Iranians. The Kurdish troops that have fought alongside U.S. troops in Syria are so disheartened by Trump's abandonment, they've threatened to release thousands of ISIS fighters they had imprisoned. After blaming Obama for the rise of ISIS, Trump is now opening the door for ISIS to rise again. All the cooler heads have been able to do is persuade Trump to make the withdrawal from Syria slower and not the quick and total pullout he'd originally announced. 
A number of conservative Republicans hate Trump's decision to pull out of Syria, including Lindsey Graham, who's part of a group of six senators from both parties, asking the president to reconsider. Graham also warned Trump that his move could give ISIS new strength. Senator Marco Rubio called the pullout a terrible mistake. Bob Corker of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee said he'd never seen a decision of this magnitude made with no advance warning. And Nebraska Republican Senator Ben Sass said a lot of American allies will be slaughtered if this retreat is implemented. Former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee pleaded with Trump to see his decision for what it is, quote, a betrayal to the Kurds who have sacrificed and shed blood for Americans. Prominent Republican lawmakers were not just expressing outrage, but pushing back against Trump's unprocessed plan. But Trump proved that he can double down on Republicans every bit as much as he does with Democrats, siding instead with Fox News' Laura Ingram. Trump proved he would defy not just the Democrats or Republicans, but that he would defy bipartisanship. He would defy anyone but himself and Fox News. The president also pulled U.S. troops out of Afghanistan, 7,000 personnel cutting U.S. presence there in half. That puts into further danger Afghan troops, who've also fought alongside Americans against the Taliban. And that opens the door a bit for the Taliban, just as Trump had done for ISIS in Syria. Trump declared that the U.S. isn't needed there anymore because ISIS has been defeated in Syria. It hasn't, and it's just been given more room to grow. The U.S. has been in Afghanistan for 17 years. There is no appetite among any of us for continuing, but there is danger in pulling out without a plan and without considering the consequences. Trump's decisions made without and against the advice of experienced experts were based on sketchy information. They were made out of ignorance of a full set of the facts, realities, and consequences. They were made out of ignorance of a full set of facts, realities, and consequences. This ignorance and disregard for anything outside his own egosphere endangered our own troops during Trump's surprise Christmas trip to Iran. Trump posted on Twitter video of some of the troops he'd met. What he doesn't know or doesn't care about is that some of those troops were Navy SEALs who had just arrived for a covert mission. In a normal presidency, any such video would not be made public until the faces of those Navy SEALs had been blurred. Trump posted their faces. Americans and now the world are witnessing just how dangerous ignorance can be when it's a quality of what we once called the leader of the free world. A clear and present danger. Moments after Vladimir Putin praised Trump's decision to get out of Syria, Trump took to Twitter. He wrote that despite what the fake news says, Russia is not happy about the withdrawal. The day before, Trump had lifted sanctions on Kremlin-connected oligarch Oleg Deripaska, who's linked to the 2016 election meddling. With Trump, it often comes back to Russia. There's a new deputy in town to stand shoulder-to-shoulder with Sheriff Special Counsel Robert Mueller, Under Democratic control as of today, the House of Representatives comes armed with the power to subpoena, to demand the production of documents and the testimony of witnesses. The Republican-controlled House that had just banged its final gavel also had subpoena power, but used it more to investigate the FBI than to investigate Russia's attack on our election process. Theirs is, after all, the party of Trump. But there's a new deputy in town, a new House led by Nancy Pelosi, who is now second in line for the presidency. 
She brings with her a gang of experienced lawmakers who will now head oversight, judicial, and intelligence committees who intend to use their subpoena powers to investigate any role the president's campaign played in that Russian interference. More importantly, that Democratic majority is likely to get its hands on the Mueller report and will likely launch Trump's impeachment. They can also get his tax returns. The president will be forced to defend himself on three battlefields in the months ahead, and Congress is one of those battlefields. The other is the campaign trail, where Democrats and a Republican or two will go after Trump with words of fire. But the biggest defensive battle Trump will be forced to wage is the one against Robert Mueller. The Mueller investigation, which has been mostly quiet in its work, is expected to be much more public in 2019. Some are calling this the year of Mueller. The importance of the Mueller report cannot be overstated. The special counsel is expected to lay out not just cases of conspiracy and obstruction of justice, but a narrative, one that paints a bigger picture to make a bigger point. It's the special counsel's summation, his closing argument, and we can expect it to be filled with as much passion as evidence. Until then, likely Mueller targets for prosecution include the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, Trump's longtime friend and advisor and political dirty trickster, Roger Stone, and his friend, conspiracy theorist, Jerome Corsi. Mueller's already indicted nearly three dozen people and gotten guilty pleas out of five of them so far. Michigan law professor and former U.S. attorney Barbara McQuaid calls that a lightning pace when you consider the complexity of the case involving technology and foreign governments. Really impressive work, she says. And 2019, the year of Mueller, has barely begun. And Trump may have only begun to fight. It's become clear that Trump plans to order the Justice Department not to pass the Mueller report along to Congress. His acting Attorney General, Matt Whitaker, had criticized the investigation but now oversees it. Career ethics officials at Justice had advised Whitaker that he should recuse himself, but Whitaker has officially decided to ignore that advice. The man Trump's chosen to be the actual Attorney General is William Barr, who has also criticized the Mueller probe. He's not likely to recuse either. After all, that's what got Jeff Sessions fired. One of these men, or perhaps someone else, will decide whether the Mueller report goes to Congress. Democrats are calling on fellow lawmakers to protect the special counsel's work from political interference. Russia is also fighting back against Mueller. Russian officials this week arrested a U.S. citizen whose family says he was in Moscow for the wedding of a friend, a fellow Marine. Russia says it caught him in the act of spying, but they haven't said what they believe he did. The U.S. is demanding the return of Paul Whelan, who was apparently arrested in retaliation for Mueller flipping Russian spy Maria Butina. And perhaps because Russia may be interested in a prisoner swap, and now it has a prisoner, too. Still, 2019 will be a year of battlefields, multiple battlefields for Trump, in court with Mueller and other federal and state prosecutors, in the new Congress, armed with questions and the power to subpoena the answers, and on the 2020 presidential campaign trail, where he's about to get an earful. More than 40 Democrats have been discussed or at some level expressed interest in running for president in 2020. At least 10 of them probably will. The number 24 has been bandied about. On New Year's Eve, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren became the first to launch an exploratory committee. 
but she won't be the last. Fellow Senators Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Sherrod Brown, Amy Klobuchar, and Kirsten Gillibrand also plan to run. Former Vice President Joe Biden is expected to run. Maryland Congressman John Delaney is leaning toward a run, along with San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro. Independent Bernie Sanders is expected to run again as a Democrat, but his campaign may be impeded this time by accusations of sexual harassment by some of his staff during his first run. Sanders says he was busy traveling the country making his case. He has apologized and says if he runs again, he'll do better. And at least one Republican appears to be ready to take on Trump heading into the GOP's 2020 primary race. Former Massachusetts governor and current Utah Senator Mitt Romney got a piece published in the Washington Post Tuesday evening in which he tore into Trump personally and professionally. Romney said he thinks Trump hit a lowest low when he ditched Chief of Staff John Kelly and Defense Secretary James Mattis and pulled out of Syria. He said Trump has not risen to the mantle of this office. A president should unite us and inspire our better angels, Romney wrote, adding, a president should demonstrate honesty and integrity and elevate the national discourse with mutual respect. With the nation so divided and angry, Romney wrote, presidential leadership and qualities of character is indispensable. Romney's beef with Trump has been on and off, but in the 2016 Republican primary, Romney called Trump a fraud playing the American public for suckers, his words. Trump responded to Romney's most recent attack with a tweet that included, I won big and he didn't. Salon.com's Bob Seska was still on holiday break when this week's show was produced, but he returns to his show this evening, dropping every Tuesday and Thursday here on the Realm Network. I'll rejoin Bob on Tuesday for our first show of the new year together, and his commentary returns to this program next week. The rest of the news, pictures from deep space, stories from Christmas, and make yourself at home in the final segment, up next. Thank you for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com for all your shopping year-round at home and at work. Your use of that link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening, so please bookmark it as your permanent shopping button. I got a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make that way and for every Amazon Prime membership purchased through me, so it really helps power this free weekly report. Just look for the Amazon logo on my website, click it, land on your very own Amazon page, and bookmark that. That. At your desktop, it's in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. And if you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button. And thank you. The same judge who declared the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional last month has now ruled it can remain in effect while his decision is being appealed. His ruling is expected to be overturned in the Fifth Circuit Court. People in 19 states and 21 cities got a raise with the arrival of the new year. Dozens of other places will also raise their wage minimums on dates spread throughout the year. Once all the current and pending laws kick in, some 17 million Americans will have gotten the raise that Republican lawmakers have refused to grant. State and federal workers are expected to spend part of 2019 protesting their own wage minimums. The Trump administration, meanwhile, is working to force Americans to get jobs if they want to keep getting food stamps. Trump couldn't get Congress to do this, so he signed an executive order to make it so. Democrats are challenging the legality of that order, arguing it robs food from families. There would be waivers for those who live in areas where jobs are harder to get. The number of Americans getting food stamps, by the way, 
has fallen by some 8 million people since the uptick in the economy opened up new jobs. And Wells Fargo has agreed to pay more than a half billion dollars to settle charges it faced in all 50 states plus the District of Columbia. The now notorious bank was being sued over its creation of 2 million fake credit and checking accounts after giving its personnel unreachable goals for signing new customers. The accounts were opened in the names of Wells Fargo existing customers and accounts rack up fees that boosted the bank's bottom line. Illinois Attorney General says Wells Fargo completely deceived its customers to turn a profit. The bank hit a new low, she said, and that's saying something. Now, in addition to coughing up $575 million in fines and restitution, the bank, with the stagecoach, has been ordered to set up a team to review customers' questions and to set up a website explaining how the bank will pay back what it stole. Illinois AG Lisa Madigan says this punishment ensures Wells Fargo can no longer breach customers' trust and get away with it. The guy who committed a gun slaughter at Orlando's Pulse nightclub, killing 49 people, had spent $1,837.29 on guns beforehand. He covered that with six credit cards. When wild-eyed James Holmes spent $11,000 on guns before the movie theater massacre, he put it on credit. In the Mandalay Bay Hotel room where Stephen Paddock had two dozen guns, police found four credit cards. At least 217 people have died in eight of the biggest mass shootings of the past decade on credit. The banks that issue these credit cards could monitor these big gun buys and report them, but they don't. Quoting a former NYPD fraud investigator, banks will complain that this is the government's job, but you know what? They're the only ones with the ability to do this. The banks say to monitor such purchases would be an invasion of the customer's privacy and set a dangerous precedent. More dangerous, apparently, than the mass murders the banks are financing. Gun advocates won a couple of victories over the holiday break. Overriding a veto by Governor John Kasich, Ohio lawmakers expanded gun rights. Among other things, the new law shifts the burden of proof from the shooter to the prosecutors in self-defense cases. The prosecution will now have to prove that self-defense was not the motive for the killing. The bill also limits the rights of Ohio towns, counties, and cities to make their own gun laws. Ohio's Republican-controlled legislature also recently voted down a bill that would remove guns temporarily from those considered to be a risk to themselves or others. Even the NRA favors that regulation, but not Ohio's Republican lawmakers. Other pro-gun groups are trying to overturn the Trump administration's proposed ban on bump stocks. Bump stocks were used in the Las Vegas gun massacre, accessories that make a rifle fire in rapid succession like a machine gun. Gun Owners of America calls the Trump plan a dangerous regulation it fears will lead to more regulation. But in Washington state, it is now illegal to sell assault rifles to people under the age of 21. The new laws also give prosecutors the authority to go after gun owners who allow their weapons to fall into the hands of a minor or anyone prohibited from having a gun. Come July, gun buyers of all ages in Washington state will have to go through a new layer of background checks if the gun they're purchasing is an AR-15 or certain 22 caliber rifles. Over the holidays, we learned that the Trump administration is reviewing the rules that regulate how much poisonous mercury coal-fired power plants can spew into our air.
humans absorb mercury from the air, the soil, the water, and the fish we eat. Mercury exposure leads to brain defects in babies and death in adults. The related death rates that had fallen are now expected to rise again. Electric companies have pretty much met the tougher restrictions of the Obama administration already, shutting down some plants and bringing others up to snuff. Already the major source of mercury pollution in the U.S., coal plants are having trouble competing with other energy sources, and it means less business for the coal industry. The Trump administration has consistently sided with the fossil fuel industry over the health of Americans or the health of the planet. If the mercury rules are loosened, that will bring the total to 79 rollbacks of environmental rules enacted over the past several presidencies. Of the 78 environmental rollbacks so far, either completed or in progress, 21 reduced air pollution, 16 reduced drilling for oil and gas, a dozen rules were lifted to make way for construction, nine rules protecting wildlife rolled back, six rules on water pollution gone, another six on toxic substances, plus eight random others. At 33 minutes into the new year, NASA received a signal from one of its probes. That signal, including a photo, came from 4 billion miles away. It is the farthest and oddest object humans have ever seen. It looks a little like a toppled snowman about 20 miles wide. It's two celestial bodies bonded together with ice, something we humans have never seen before. Traveling at the speed of light, it took six hours for the photo to get here. The probe's mission is to help us understand the origins of our solar system. The same probe had already given NASA its closest look at Pluto on its way toward deep space. One of the researchers is Brian May, who you may remember as the lead guitarist for Queen. He's also a rocket scientist. China, meanwhile, has become the first nation to land on the dark side of the moon. China sent an unmanned rover where it will examine rocks that are over 4 billion years old. The flu season was late in arriving this year, but it came with a vengeance. By Christmas, it had opened its season. While fewer than half of us are getting the shots that prevent or lessen the severity of the flu and help prevent its spread to others. Last year's flu put nearly a million people into hospitals, and eight in ten of them nearly died. The flu virus is said to be exploding around Lexington, Kentucky right now. Is this a thing? Selfie wrist? An orthopedic surgeon in Los Angeles says he's seen an uptick in complaints about sore wrists and tingly fingers. His diagnosis? Carpal tunnel syndrome caused by too many selfies in which people flex their wrists to extremes to get another photo of themselves. Doctors in San Diego say they had to repair a tendon that had been torn by a 29-year-old man who played Candy Crush all day, every day, for more than six weeks. Daryl Dragon has died of kidney failure at age 76. He was the captain in the singing duo, the Captain and Tennille, and considered a brilliant musician. He earned the nickname Captain when he was a keyboardist with the Beach Boys, and they gave him his captain's cap. His ex-wife and singing partner, Tony Tennille, was at his bedside when he passed. Deadpan comic actor Bob Einstein, famous for his roles as Super Dave Osborne and for his role on HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm, has died at age 76 from cancer. Einstein won Emmys for his writing for the Smothers Brothers, Steve Martin, Pat Paulson, and for his work on Sonny and Cher and a Dick Van Dyke variety show. His younger brother is actor-director Albert Brooks. He tweeted to his lost sibling, you will be missed forever. 
Actor Kevin Spacey is facing a felony charge in a sexual assault case in Rhode Island. This public accusation came last year from a TV news anchor in Nantucket who said her then-teenage son had been accosted by Spacey in a local bar. Spacey apologized at the time and said he was seeking treatment while denying another separate accusation of sexual misconduct from a man who was 14 when he says Spacey accosted him. Spacey is also under investigation for similar complaints in London. A Los Angeles complaint won't be pursued further, but it was another accusation. When the Rhode Island charge against Spacey was announced, Spacey posted a bizarre video in character as Frank Underwood from House of Cards, the show from which he was fired when multiple allegations surfaced. Spacey's last movie made just $126 on its opening night. He's been ordered to appear in court for arraignment on Monday. Aquaman is the top movie in North America for the second straight week with another $52 million this past weekend. Mary Poppins Returns was second with $28 million. Bumblebee is third. And Into the Spider-Verse is third. To see previews, find a theater near you and at showtimes, or to buy tickets, please click through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. And now, Christmas stories. Commuters in Utah got lumps of coal in the northbound lanes of I-15 after a truck inexplicably dumped its load on the road. Security video has identified a suspect in a business burglary in Fort Collins, Colorado. The suspect is clearly Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, or a woman who has such a costume. The Grinch was as naked as the day he was born when he tore down his neighbor's Christmas decorations. Police in Green Bay, Wisconsin, say the 61-year-old man was drunk and nude when he ripped down the lights from next door. He's been charged with disorderly conduct and, because alcohol was involved, resisting arrest. They called it a true Christmas story in Toledo when a four-foot-tall weed on a street corner was suddenly decorated like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Not marijuana, just a weed weed. Other people added more decorations, including bows and lights. Still others left glad tidings and gifts for the poor and donations. The Christmas weed got its own Facebook page. But the local Grinch did a drive-by. He didn't take the donations, but he pulled the weed up and stuffed it into his trunk before driving away. There was warmer warmth this holiday. A father who wanted to spend Christmas with his daughter knew she'd be working both days as a flight attendant for Delta Airlines, so he bought tickets on every one of his daughter's holiday flights using some frequent flyer miles, of course. In Chester County, Pennsylvania, police got a call from a concerned relative worried that 34-year-old Nathaniel Lewis was acting erratically. The result was a shootout with police and a 10-hour standoff with a SWAT team. But then, one of the SWAT team members started singing, Silent Night. Never mind the police firepower. That was too much for Nathaniel Lewis, who suddenly surrendered. A Seattle social worker died from cancer at age 63 last year. He was known for being a real penny pincher, duct-taping his shoes instead of buying new ones, stuff like that. He waited for closing time at the deli to get bargain prices on food. Alan Naiman worked extra jobs as well as he focused almost entirely on making and saving money. He was all about that. He bought himself a fancy sports car. But then his developmentally disabled brother died, and Naiman's outlook changed. He kept scrimping. If he took you to lunch, it was fast food only. But on his death, he left most of his $11 million estate 
to children's charities that help the poor, the sick, the disabled, and the abandoned. His posthumous generosity was felt this Christmas. Teachers get a lot of little gifts from students over the holidays, and elementary school teacher Rachel Uretsky-Pratt of Kennewick, Washington, is no exception. What is exceptional is the gift that stood out among the chocolates, notes, and costume jewelry. Many of Rachel's students are from poor families. This year, one of them gave her a little bag of marshmallows in the shapes of stars, moons, and hearts. They were the marshmallows from a box of Lucky Charms cereal. This young girl had sacrificed the joy of eating arguably the best part of that cereal so that he or she could give the teacher something, something good. Be grateful for what you have and what others give you, writes Rachel, adding, it truly comes from the deepest parts of their hearts. From the crime blotter. In Washington State, two men who tried to steal tools from a farm supply store found themselves surrounded by six customers, all of whom had drawn their guns. One of the customers fired when the thieves tried to get away in a Honda Civic. Amazingly, with six civilian guns drawn, no one got hurt, and the bad guys were captured. Welcome home. Laundry's done, dinner's ready, the coffee's on, and the hot tub is ready. Can I get a lift? From our make-yourself-at-home department, in Santa Monica, California, two homeless men faced burglary charges after a guy returned home from Christmas shopping to find the suspects cooking dinner in his house. The men explained they hadn't expected him home so soon and asked if they could hang out for a while. The homeowner said, sure, asked if they'd had enough to eat, and then took his bulldog for a walk, just long enough to dial 911. In Uniontown, Ohio, a couple broke into a home to do their laundry and take a shower. The coffee was just ready in time for the legal occupant to show up. She called a relative who owns a gun, and the two of them held the couple until the police could arrive. In Waverly, Ohio, an escaped inmate has been recaptured after being found soaking in a hot tub at a senior's community. The inmate wasn't naked. She was still wearing her bright yellow prison uniform in the hot tub. And in Waterboro, Maine, a man broke into a home, took a shower, put on some fresh clothes that belonged to the homeowner, had a little something to eat, watched some TV, and then, when the homeowner came home, asked if he could get a ride. The intruder explained that he had entered the home by accident, thinking it was his friend's house. The homeowner thought, well, this is plausible, so he drove the intruder to that other home. It wasn't until the homeowner returned to his place that he realized the visitor had taken a shower, put on some of the homeowner's clothes, and eaten some of his food. Lexington, Kentucky police stood by helplessly once it was too late to save a truck that had been enveloped by fire. No one got hurt, aside from the appetites of the officers. One officer was recorded standing in the foreground of the charred truck, appearing to cry. People posted their condolences at the officer's loss. A truck full of Krispy Kreme donuts... London police are out with their annual list of bizarre emergency calls to their 999 number, the British equivalent of 911. Of the some 2 million calls made to London's emergency number, 20,000 were for non-emergency, some of them just plain silly. One caller complained about how long it was taking a pub to serve their breakfast. Another called to complain about a bus driver who whistles. One woman called and demanded she be sent a taxi cab. One call was to wish police a happy new year, which police operated describe as a waste of time and one call was from a man calling to complain that his neighborhood kfc had run out of chicken 
A six-year-old boy in New Jersey didn't call 911 for help with his homework. He called on Alexa, the digital assistant from Amazon. The boy's mother used her cell phone camera to capture on video her son cheating on his arithmetic homework, asking Alexa to subtract three from five. Montana, more than anywhere else, may be asking Alexa to play the song Hippie Hippie Shake. A Democratic state lawmaker there has introduced a bill to make Hippie Hippie Shake the state's official rock and roll song. Montana already has a state song, a state ballad, and a state lullaby. Rock and roll seemed the next logical step to Representative Jacob Bachmeyer, who notes the song, written by a Montana high school senior in 1959, has been recorded by about 20 groups, including the Beatles, and has been featured in at least seven movies. The legislation begins, whereas Montanans shake it to the left and shake it to the right and do everything with all their might. Film at 11. In Iowa, a businessman found some old reels of film in the basement of a building he'd just bought. About two dozen reels of film from the 1930s, including footage of the Chicago World's Fair in 1933 and 34. It will cost $10 for every second of footage that is restored and digitized. The new owner says he will try to find funding for this project, but... He says the film will be restored even if he has to pay for it himself. He says the film shows America in a very different time. People drinking out of the same bucket of water using the same cup. Quoting the new film historian, he would not do that today. Old film gets found from time to time. An historian at the Idaho Fish and Game Commission found two years ago footage from 1948 showing beavers being relocated with parachutes. And finally, Australian police swarmed to an urgent call from a home outside Perth where the emergency number is 000. A passerby had heard something, the screaming of a toddler and a man shouting over and over, Why don't you die? As it turns out, the child and the man both have a deathly fear of spiders. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting this free news at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.